to Meaning on the Mound, and today we are super pumped to be joined by former Dodgers legend Sean Green. Sean, how you doing, man? Great. How are you? Good, good. What have you been up to these past couple weeks? Um, you know, I think the same as everyone, just trying to figure out what's uh, the new normal, and and uh, you know, I got two daughters in high school, so trying to help help them navigate and and uh, enjoying watching the postseason baseball. Yeah, me too. Me too. That's great. That's great to hear. Um, so happy to have you on the show. Uh, this has been a, a project of mine that I've been working on for some time. So to have you on is just awesome. Um, but I want to like you know get everybody caught up on on who you are, which I'm sure everybody knows. But just in case you need a, a refresher, uh, Sean Green. He was a two time All Star and a Gold Glove and Silver Slug Award winning outfielder. Uh, he played 15 years in the big leagues with the Blue Jays, Dodgers, Diamondbacks, and Mets. He holds the Dodgers franchise record for most home runs in a single season when he hit 49 in 2001. And then in 2002, he became the 14th player in Major League history to hit four home runs in a single game. And he also set the record for most total bases that day with 19. Now, Sean, I've read that uh, bio to you a few times now. And (laughs) you told me the last time that those were the good highlights from your career. But um, I just wanted to kind of... Uh, bring you in and 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 talk about this this weird season we've all been enduring this 2020 season very unprecedented what have been your you know your takeaways and your thoughts so far watching watching this season yeah well it's it's good to see uh, i mean i think two of the best teams are definitely in the in the world series which is good i know the the rays always get overshadowed by other teams in the east particularly the yankees but um i i do think that both of those teams would have been going deep into the postseason had it been a regular full season. But I, I think it's been great to see um, some exploration and, and testing by Major League Baseball. I liked that they went with an expanded playoff. Um, you know, I guess the feedback will be uh, you know interesting to see with the three-game series, so that's a little tricky. I think there might be need, need to be some tweaking there. But um, I like that, and 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 obviously the uh, the – extra inning change where you have a a runner on second base um, to start the extra innings was pretty interesting as well as um, the, the shorter double headers. We had that in the minor leagues. And I think that was um, always a a nice move as a player is to, to not have to look down the barrel of, of 18 innings. You can kind of plan for 14. So um, it'll be, it'll be good to do the postmortem after the season and and see what the feedback is from both uh, the fans and, and the, the organizations. Yeah, one of the things that bothered me about the expanded playoffs was that you had the top teams in each division having to play this sort of play-in three-game series in order to get to the divisional round. And to me, that just seemed kind of unfair for the teams that had the best records because it kind of puts them on the same playing field as other teams that didn't that weren't as successful. Um, what, what did you make of that? And and what would you what would you change if you had to change anything? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. I think, um, you know, maybe you added uh, an extra team or two and then have um, the, more of the, you know, the lower tier teams that made it kind of battled off to play against the, the best records. And, and maybe you do something more like the NBA and have, um, you know, just two different tables that um, you could just kind of just go with a straight rank and, and you play in, in that way. So I think there's there's different things to do. Other leagues, there's, there's a lot out there. What even looking at some of the European leagues, like there's a lot of different um, successful implementations of a postseason. and baseball is tricky because there are so many games and it is such a long season 
Um, but I, I think uh, what's happened this past year, I think, and for everyone, is it's people become a little more open-minded about change and kind of switching up some of the, um, you know, the legacy um, requirements or legacy traditions that, that kind of bind different leagues and, you know, everything else in, in regular life as well. I think whether it's business travel or different things, I think everything's changing a little bit. So now's the time to make some adjustments. One of the big questions this season, and we just saw recently the Lakers win uh, the championship, and they also won in some sort of uh, bubble atmosphere, right? So we have uh, the baseball season. It was only 60 games. Then you have this weird expanded playoffs. Uh, You have neutral sites, so you're not really getting home field advantage if you're a player, and obviously you never played through anything quite like this, but as a player on the field, if you could put your you know uniform back on again, how would you rate or how would you feel about winning uh, or losing a, a World Series title under these circumstances? Does it does it change the feeling of it because of the circumstances, or is it just the same? I would imagine that it it does change a lot of things about it, but I do think. You know, if I'm on the Dodgers or the Rays, whoever ends up winning this, um, I, I would feel like in a lot of ways this was a harder earned championship because of the extra round of playoffs and um, because of all the challenges that have been endured. I think it's it's a lot different playing the games without a crowd or with a really small crowd and not going to the, you know, your home stadium and the opposing stadium because it, it does change. Um, you know, certain teams have a big advantage at home, I would imagine, the Dodgers are, are one of them um, with a strong fan base, but, you know, obviously the Yankees and Red Sox and teams like that have such a big advantage. You know, I, I think just even this postseason, the Yankees, had they been able to play Yankee Stadium, might have had a, a better chance of going further because it is an intimidating place to play as, as an opposing player. So, um, you know, those things changed it a lot, but I, I think if you can come out of this and have, having won an extra round of, of postseason and, and kind of, you know, handled and navigated through all the adversity that these players had to deal with and these, you know, families had to deal with. I think it's, it's definitely, um, you know, should be a, a nice ring to wear just as, as much as any other ring that players um, get in a normal season. I, I, I agree with you. I, I feel the exact same way. If they're going to put some sort of asterisk on this season, it should be to denote something that was a lot more difficult than it being less difficult or different in any way. I just think that with everybody being on the same playing field, pretty much same thing with the Lakers, too. I felt like that was a more difficult environment. And, you know, I would count a World Series title just the same. Um, moving on, though, because I, I had a I had a thought while watching um, the playoffs in the World Series and. You know, I'm I'm guilty of this of of criticizing uh, the manager when he makes a, a decision uh, in a given game, and of course, when you're in the playoffs, things are a lot more heightened and a lot more scrutinized. So it it makes sense that everything is looked at a little closer. But I'm I was just wondering from from a player's perspective. I mean, you played for a number of different managers: Cito Gaston, Davey Johnson, Jim Tracy, Bob Melvin, Willie Randolph, to name a few guys. Um, did you ever at any point as a player 
take into consideration the, a decision your manager made in terms of like a pinch hitter or a pitching uh, decision? Did you ever feel some sort of way about it? Or did it? W- did you guys talk amongst yourselves as players? Or was that something that just obviously was out of your hands and you couldn't control it? Oh, no, players, players talk about that all the time. And, you know, I think that's what happens sometimes when a manager loses the clubhouse is um, the players start to really question some of the decisions, whether it's, you know, who's in the starting lineup on a regular basis um, and, you know, pitching changes are, are an obvious one, but yeah, players definitely are questioning, you know, what happens on the field as, as much and, and sometimes even more so than the fans. But, um, you know, I think when you have a manager that people trust and an organization that has a, a winning history, I think it's um, the players buy into you know, what the approach is of the organization. And with the Dodgers case, I know they all love Dave Roberts and they, I played with Dave. He's a good friend of mine. He's a, he's an awesome guy and a smart guy. And I think, I think the players know that it's, you know, an organizational philosophy. Like they, they want to make a lot of pitching moves. They want to go with matchups. They have a lot of data and, and I, the players have clearly bought in, you know, obviously everyone wants to play every day. So I'm sure there's, players who sit against, you know, lefty lefty matchup, whatever that are, that are not thrilled, but um, you know, he does such a good job of managing those relationships. Yeah. And I think that where we are now, the manager doesn't have as much authority as he used to, because I feel like the, the front offices are a lot more involved in the game planning and the decision-making am I right in assuming that? I mean, when you were, when you were playing, did the, did the manager have more of, of a say so as to what happened, you know, prior to the game and then uh, while the game was being played? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, the managers really handled the the stuff on the field and in the clubhouse and the general managers were, you know, making the trades and running the organization, you know, top to bottom. Um, you know, there were situations like I remember even back when I was in Toronto, I, I platooned my first few years and I know the front office was, you know, putting pressure on the manager, Cito Gaston, to, to play me on a daily basis. And um, but, you know, it was it was clearly a battle that the manager was winning because I, I really didn't start playing every day until, um, you know, he was on the way out. So I, I it was a, it was a, de- a different mentality i think um where you had a lot of you know former baseball players that were even in general manager roles you know people that were scouts for years so it was different as now you got a lot of young guys that are great at, at crunching the numbers and analyzing data and those are the ones that are are uh, making a lot of decisions when it comes to um you know who's going to be on the field in different situations um, as the game unfolds and, and uh, even the start of the game as well you said you had been watching a few innings here or there uh, of the of the World Series and the playoffs, and I just was curious if you had caught uh, this moment from uh, Game Five where Kershaw was being lifted um, in the sixth inning, I believe it was. He had already gotten two outs, and Roberts went out there to relieve him. Of course, the crowd um, was booing because they didn't want to see Kershaw. Uh, get taken out of the game but what the cameras also caught was Justin Turner uh, essentially saying to Dave Roberts like hey Kershaw can get this guy and obviously he used a little bit more colorful language than that but he did say that um, and that's what made me think about this question of um, p- 
players speaking up for other players in that type of scenario. Does that happen quite often where, you know, if you're, if you're playing on the field, now obviously you being in the outfield, you wouldn't come to the mound in that, in that scenario, but I know you played first base a little bit. So, I mean, does, does, did that happen quite a bit when you were playing of like, you know, you, you would kind of get together on the mound and kind of question uh, a manager's decision to bring in a pitcher or, or leave him in. Yeah, no, I didn't experience that. Um, when I was playing, I think there was more um, guys going to bat, so to speak, for other guys. You know, like I know some some of my teammates went to bat for me, saying, "Hey, why don't you get why don't you get him in the lineup every day? You know, he's doing well." And and I know there's some of that, but in terms of a, an actual like in the moment questioning of authority, um, I haven't I haven't seen that as a player, uh, at least as far as I can remember. Yeah. Just uh, thought I had to ask you about that because it was just <laughs> such an interesting moment where I was like, "Wow, I can't believe he he said that." But you know, it was cool just to see it. You know, another player be passionate for for his teammate. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, your postseason career. Now, you you got to the postseason twice, uh, once with the Dodgers in '04, and then again in '06 with the Mets. I want to talk about that uh, the Mets NLDS game one. And a lot of people, uh, you know, know about this play. I think the the Dodgers fans would like to forget it. Uh, I certainly would because it was such a <laughs> horrible, horrible thing for, to happen for us. But in game one, the Dodgers uh, had a couple of runners on. And uh, it was uh, Jeff Kent and J.D. Drew were on base. And Russell Martin comes up to the comes up to the plate. He hits a slicing fly ball to right field in the corner. You play the carom. You throw a. Uh, you know, a perfect throw to the relay guy. He throws a perfect throw to the plate. And Paul LaDuca, also former Dodger, current Met in that scenario, makes the tag on Jeff Kent and then makes the tag on J.D. Drew. And you guys got two outs there and you end up winning the game six to five. So like that was pretty much the difference in the game. And that was a huge moment early on in that game. I just kind of wanted to ask you about that play because it was such a weird bizarre play that it, it it didn't make sense that uh JD Drew would also try to score in that situation so I just want to get your thoughts on that play what you were what you saw from right field yeah in that situation you know, as an outfielder you're just doing your job and your job is to get to the ball as fast as you can try not to try to pick it up cleanly and release it right to the to the cutoff man and Valentin was a cutoff man which I know Valentin played for the Dodgers. I think it was right before the yes. Mets as well. So all three of us were recent Dodgers. But um, yeah, so I just grabbed the ball. And, you know, at that, as a veteran, you know exactly where everyone's going to be. So you don't even really need to look for the real man. So I just I just grabbed the ball and, and threw it and knew, you know, he would be, you know, basically in the short, short right field right between first and second base. And I just hurled it there and he made a perfect, he had the harder throw and he made a perfect throw to Laduca. Laduca got the first tag and, and was, you know, showing the ball to the umpire, making sure he, he saw it. And someone was yelling at him to turn around. I believe it was, I believe it was John Main, I think was pitching that day. Yeah. And he was backing up home plate. So he turned around and in the last second made the second tag. So in, for the Mets fans and in TV and all that, it's, it's a play that they, Revere and they show, you know, constantly just like they show the Andy Chavez um, home run robbery against uh, in the NLCS, the next yep. series um, against, uh, I think, uh, Sotoguchi hit 
Um, so those, those two plays were the ones that stood out really in that postseason. But, it, you know, for me, it was, it was just a matter of getting the ball and getting it in. And, and the, harder, the harder play was definitely Ballantin um, hitting it, throwing a perfect strike to LaDuca. I think the Dodgers were doomed from that moment because that was in game one and you guys end up sweeping them in that series. Um, wh- why do you think J.D. Drew just tr- tried to score? Was he, was, it trying, was he trying to like sneak one across or was he always running? Did you see what, what happened with why he decided to, to also try and score? Yeah, I never got the, the download on that, but I would imagine maybe, maybe the, um, who's the th- I don't even know who the third base coach was then because um, Hoffman was gone, but I, maybe he saw the third base coach waving, waving Kent and thought he was waving him, you know, because mm. that's a, that's a play If the balls in, in right field, especially you're really relying heavily on your third base coach. If the ball is down the left field line, as you're about to hit third base, you can see it, you know, you kind of see it engage, um, you know, what the, the play is going to look like at home play and whether or not you could score, but a ball way behind you, you're completely relying on the third base coach. So I would imagine that's what happened. Mm. And I also want to just point out, because I just recently rewatched the play, and I believe it was Gary Thorne who was on the call for ESPN that day. Very, uh, you know, very recognizable voice. I believe it was Gary Thorne. He said that you didn't get a good read on the ball in the in the broadcast, and that's why you played it off the wall. But I have to say, in your defense, I didn't think you had a shot to catch that ball. I thought you played it pretty well. What did you think about that? Yeah, I, I didn't even think that was a question, but you, know, you never know what's, what's being said. <laughs> I know. Um, I was listening. I, I honestly was listening to it. And I was like, what? He took a bad route? Are, are you kidding me? No one could catch that ball. That ball was going to hit the wall regardless. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, th- those things happen. I yeah, I, was, I wasn't worried about it. I just, my, like, again, I was just, uh, I don't think I ever, I don't know if I ever heard the, the actual call. I've seen the the replay, you know, the, the footage many times, but I don't know if I ever heard the call on ESPN. Well, go go back and listen to it and have a nice laugh to yourself because <laughs> yeah. you end up getting two outs on the play instead of just one if you had miraculously dove and caught it. So there you go. Um, so I, I, I kind of wanted to round this out by talking about, um, uh, you know, our story so that everyone kind of understands like, you know, how we're how we've been connected for about 20 years, which I think is a really fascinating story. Um, obviously I grew up a Dodgers fan. And if you listen to episode one of this podcast, I did, uh, talk about the story of when I first met you, but just to rehash it a little bit and not to make you feel old, but I was, (laughs) I was nine years old, uh, when you first, uh, played for the Dodgers in 2000 and it was my birthday. My parents had arranged for me and my friends to, go to the ballpark and, you know, be on the field before and watch batting practice and get to meet the players. And me and my friend, Jacob Moss, who I'm still really good friends with is, uh, we decided to bring you a, uh, a sculpture that we had made in art class. And I don't know why we thought that was a great idea because neither of us were artists and it just, <laughs> uh, and I'll just go ahead and say it was not a good piece of art, but we were super excited to meet you and we thought, why not present this to you? And before I finish the rest of the story, we, we presented it to you and I just kind of want to get your, get your thoughts on, you know, what, what, what was going through your mind when you opened it? It was a clay, like blob sculpture, sculpture. For, <laughs> That's right. For yeah, the, I don't, yeah. I don't even know what it was, but no, it was. N- neither did we. Yeah, no, it was, it's, it was cool. It was a nice gesture and. Um, when you're playing, you always appreciate, 
you know, when uh, people are thoughtful enough to, to give you something, because they're always asking you for something, you know, can I have a ball, can I have an autograph, whatever. So, I um, mean, it was nice to, to be on the other end of it. And, and, you know, I always, I was a huge baseball fan as a kid myself. And, and I knew exactly what it felt like for you guys to be meeting me as, as a player. Um, so I, you know, keep that in mind when I, when I was meeting young kids and, um, yeah, it was, again, it was, it was a nice gesture and I was, you know, thrilled to meet you guys. Yeah. Well, I, we have a photo of, of that moment and your, your face was just a brilliant, uh, snapshot of, of, of what it, what it was. Cause I, cause there was a little bit of shock on your face, I think, of, or maybe just, or maybe just like trying to process what it was at first. <laughs> right. Um, but you told us that day that you were going to keep it in your locker if you hit a home run and you guys were playing the Marlins that day. I had to look that up. I didn't remember that, but I had to look that up. You guys were playing the Marlins that day. You hit two home runs and you ended up keeping it in your locker, which I only found out years later, but um, what, what happened? I mean, in, in terms of baseball superstitions, right? I think that a lot of ball players are, you know, especially you, you're very routine oriented. Clayton Kershaw is another example of a guy who's just super routine oriented. Um, when you, when, after you hit those home runs, what, what, what went through your mind when you, when you looked at the uh, sculpture again? Yeah. You know, it's just, you look at it, you go, oh, this is, this can stay in my locker. You know, it's one of those things I'll keep this here and it worked out. And um, there's, there's a couple of things that I kept in my locker for a number of years. One was in Toronto. I got from some native Americans that were Blue Jay fans. I got a, a little dream catcher. Um, you know what the dream catchers are? Yep. You know, a little. And so I had one of those in my locker and it made it through at least made definitely made it to LA. I'm not sure if it made it beyond that, but um yeah, you, you find some things that you think bring you a little luck and you, you collect them and yours was one of those things. So there's, yeah, there's a, a couple little, little lucky charms I would, you know, so to speak that I, uh, I had and, and, you know, the other players have those things too, but you know, you were fortunately, um, you know, or coincidentally you were one of those, uh, lucky charms thanks to the little sculpture that you provided me, you know, in, in uh, I guess that was probably, that was probably what, Oh, one Oh two. It was, it was 2000. That was 2000. Okay. Yeah. So it was, yeah. So well, it was right when I got there, I'm going to take credit for you hitting 49 home runs in 2001 and you hitting four yeah. home runs in 2002, because I believe you still had it in your locker, right? Yes. Yes. All right. So I'm, I'm taking credit for that. You are welcome. And uh, Dodgers fans, you're welcome as well. Um, I, I wanted to also just touch on uh, one of the things that we've talked about before, which was um, this tradition that you had where you would throw your batting gloves into the stands after a home run. And I just found it so fascinating how that all came about, um, because eventually when you played for uh, the Diamondbacks, um, you uh, ended up throwing me a, a glove when my dad and I were going on our baseball trip around uh, to different stadiums. Um, which was like one of the highlights of my entire life. I still have the glove and it got me thinking about wh how that all came about. And you told me that it had, it was not something you always did, but something that started uh, when you became a Dodger. Yeah, it was, it was probably pretty, you know, not too much before you gave me the sculpture, but uh, early in April, my first year with the Dodgers, I, I was on deck and um, my batting glove was, was, you know, ripped pretty, pretty, you know, much the whole way across my palm. 
Um, but I didn't have time to go back and get a new pair of batting gloves out of my locker. So I just went up there, I hit a home run and I just tossed them into the, into the crowd to, a, you know, a couple of kids who, you know, didn't know what was coming at them because they weren't, there was no knowledge that that's something that I did because I had never done it before. And, and so I threw the batting gloves out and Vince Scully said on air, he said, uh, oh, there must be something that the new guy does when he hits a home run. And I didn't know that because obviously I was playing, not listening to the TV, but, um, Mitch Poole, who still works for the Dodgers, he was in the clubhouse and he came out and said, Hey, is that something you do when you hit home run? And I, and I said, no, but it's a good idea. And so from then on, um, Mitch had to remind me the first couple of times, cause it was, you know, when you hit home runs, last thing you're, you're thinking about is, um, kind of a, a post home run routine. But then after a couple of reminders, then it became a, a routine and, and I did it from, from there on out. And, and it was pretty cool because kids would come running down. Um, as I was rounding the bases, I think they would all come running down to the dugout, which was nice. There'd be, you know, sometimes 10 or 20 kids like leaning over yelling as I got back and, and my teammates actually like found it, um, to be pretty fun too. They would, if I went for a little stretch without hitting home runs, they would, you know, Alex Cora or Beltre, those guys, like they would kind of look at me like, Hey, you know, you gotta get rid of those batting gloves. And, <laughs> and so that was kind of a, um, a little sort of inside inside story amongst the team and amongst the fans, which was, was fun to share. Yeah, no, definitely a really, really cool uh, tradition that you, I don't think anybody has ever really done it since or before. Um, so that's a really cool, unique thing that you, that you started. Um, so you started to talk a little bit about your teammates and I just want to want to know, like from your perspective, who was like the the biggest character you ever played with or like the like the the most interesting player that you ever played with yeah no, there's that's the thing about baseball is it's you get a lot of characters a lot of characters um you know i i had a lot of guys that i you know i still keep in touch with love love a lot of the guys um toronto i was really close with carlos togato and alex gonzalez and pat hankin darren fletcher came to la and um, was really close with Adrian Beltre, uh, Matt Hurgis, Dave Roberts, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of great guys there as well. And, you know, you know, on and on with, with Arizona and New York as well. So, um, in terms of characters, a guy that was really quirky was, um, was, uh, the closer, um, I'm blanking on his name. Um, Dodgers, closer? Randy Myers, Randy Myers. If you remember him, the lefty. Oh yeah he was, he was odd for sure. Like he would <laughs> every day talk about superstitions. He had a big salami that he'd have a machete and he'd be cutting chunks of salamis with his wearing camouflage and he'd be eating them in his locker, like a whole salami. Um, he had it's like, a, it's like major league. It's like straight out of that. It was movie. like major league. Yeah. He had a stun gun. To, I mean, he had like, I think he put a grenade somewhere in the his locker to like, I mean, he was, he was, he was out there pretty far, but trying to um, recreate the war. What's going on there? I know he was, he was worried that someone was <laughs> going to attack the sky dome up in Canada. You got to worry about, you got to worry about your defense in Toronto. Um, of course. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of enemies the Canadians have, right. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so he was definitely, he was definitely one of the big characters for sure. I mean, Adrian Belcher has to be one of the biggest characters, right? I mean, the, the whole thing about him, people not wanting to touch his head. And he was very particular about that. What was that about? Yeah, it's kind of funny. That was like, he definitely had that when I was playing with them, but it wasn't as, it wasn't as pronounced, I think, as, as he got older. Like 
think we just kind of like joke around us a little bit, but I don't think it was widely known that not to touch his head. And that became something as he moved on um, where it, it became more of a national story, but um, yeah, you know, he, he definitely did. I actually, you know, another, another guy that was great who fortunately passed away is Jose Lima. I enjoyed. Mm. Yeah. He was, he, was, he awesome. was quite a character. Yeah. He had, he had a nice, nice year for us. I actually had won our only game in that postseason against the Cardinals, but yep. um, you know, I, the year he was with us, there was not a ball you could sign that didn't already have his signature on there. He was really good to the fans. He loved everything about and appreciated being, you know, a major league baseball player as opposed to having that um, attitude of entitlement. And that was, it was pretty refreshing to see someone that was already, you know, 10, 12 years into their career that um, still felt like, you know, a rookie and, and was excited to be in the big leagues. Well, Sean, thanks so much, man, for joining us today on Meeting on the Mound. And hopefully, the next time we speak, the Dodgers will have broken the 88 curse and won their seventh World Series title. I hope you enjoyed yourself as much as I did. Yeah, I had a great time. Yeah, enjoyed enjoyed talking with you and and look forward to next time. And like you said, hopefully tonight or tomorrow is the the championship that the Dodgers have been looking for 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 32 years. It's impossible to not think of the 92-year-old Vin Scully, the greatest to ever do it. Started with the Dodgers in 1950, retired four years ago. That is strike two. 67 years of his life he poured into the Dodger organization, and you know he's watching and rooting. Ownership, Andrew Friedman. Dave Roberts. Oh, and strike three. Dodgers have won it all in 2020.